Well, we're about ready to start a new sermon series, and that is that we're going to look through the book of Ephesus, and the, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But before we do that, I have a question. How does gospel expansion happen, and how is God's glory made known? Now, there's, of course, numerous ways, but the most clearest way that the New Testament teaches us is through the development of churches the raising up of churches in different locations where God's people can come and worship. Tim, Tim Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which has approximately around 5,000 members and has planted 50 other churches in the city of New York, had this to say, As in today's world, the city is the gateway to maximum effectiveness in proclaiming the gospel. Not always, but more times than not, it is through the city that the gospel has maximum opportunity to bear fruit. And that is still true to this day. It's not the only means. Obviously, God uses other means to proclaim His glory. But the main means of reaching the world, reaching the lost, is through the raising up, through the planning of churches. And today what I'd like us to do is to look at history. I'm a history buff, and I like history, and some of you may not like history, but every time that there's a letter that happens, every time that there was an email I sent Amber when I was in Nigeria and she was in uh, Tennessee and we were courting, we were dating, it happened in context. There was things that were happening around us. And the same is true whenever we read a letter of the New Testament, one of Paul's letters or John's letters or the writer of Hebrews or Peter's letters, there's context, there's history. And so today I want to look as best I can in the time allowed to us a little bit of the history of what was going on at the church at Ephesus. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, we do ask your blessing uh, upon this time. Father, I thank you for the book of Ephesians. And God, you know how you've used that book in my life. Father, forgive me when I have not treasured it as much as I should, those eternal words that are written by your Spirit. Lord, I would ask that as we look at the history of this church that we can see some ties to here at Desert Springs and your call upon this church. And Lord, as we look at uh, your Spirit's writing to your children, Father, may we apply those eternal truths to our lives, not only this week, but in the weeks to come. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may think we'd get started in the book of Ephesians, but we're going to turn to another book today, and that is the book of Acts. Acts is the history of the expansion of the church, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to look at three verses there, and then I'm going to read uh, most of chapter 19, and there's a good reason for that, and that'll come later. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 20, and then after that we'll move to chapter 19, verse 1. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chinchoria he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Chapter 19. And it happened 
that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily at the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorists, exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found out it it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia to his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. But about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, bought no little business to craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the... 
Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowds prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, about two hours they cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is a is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek any further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And after that, we tore ourselves from the Ephesians, and we set sail to Kos. Well, that ends a glimpse of two years in the ministry of Paul's life. And then there was another example when Paul revisited the church in Ephesus. Now, why do I read all that to you? That was a long section. I, I do realize that. It's to provide context. And there are some great lessons here for us to look and what was happening in the church of Ephesus. So that when we start to get into this book of Ephesians, uh, we don't miss it. Because one of the great errors in Bible study is to pull things out of context. That is a tremendous error in the church. R.C. Sproul, I was listening to him just recently, and he said, for every error I see in the Greek, I see ten uh, errors uh, come by deduction. In other words, people don't deduce what all is going on correctly. They may notice all the intricacies, but they fail to bring it all to a point. And if we are going to be good students, if I'm going to be a good shepherd of you all, we need to look at the context. So let's go through here and let's see the couple of things that real highlights to the church at Ephesus. Well, when, notice first when Paul arrived in Ephesus, uh, he did what he normally did. He was coming back, he was going to Jerusalem, and he went to the synagogue. Now, why did he go to the synagogue? Obviously, this is where the Jewish population gathered. And salvation was from the Jews. It was to come to them first. And so Paul went into the synagogue, as was his habit, to reason with them. Not only to reason with the Jews, but also a group of people called the God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentile believers in Yahweh... However, there was one thing that held them short. They were unwilling to become circumcised. And so these people would all gather at the synagogues to come and worship God. And as Paul's habit would, he would go in there, and oftentimes he wouldn't last that long. Three weeks or maybe a month he would be there, and finally opposition would arise and they would kick him out of the synagogue. And by God's grace, some people came to faith and would follow Paul. But this time, I don't know if you caught this church, something different happened. Did you see what happened? Uh, The Jews came to Paul and they said, can you spend some more time here? 
Now, uh, I haven't been in the ministry that long, a little over 10 years. But when you got a group of people that says, hey, please come back, that's a good thing. That's motivating. A captive audience, much like you all. You're very uh, uh, welcoming and very in, uh, interactive uh, with the people who preach. The, Luke has said that numerous times when we've talked about you guys, of how much you're into Scripture and being involved in the sermon. But notice what Paul says. Thanks, but no thanks, i got to go. And if God wills, I'll come back and see you. Wait a minute. You're Paul. You got commissioned by God to go among the Gentiles and start churches, right? Wasn't that his commission? And now he goes to all these churches. He was returning from his second missionary journey. And here he arrives in Ephesus, the key city of the province of Asia. All the trade happens through Ephesus. And unlike today, if you go to Ephesus, uh, it's about uh, 40 or 50 miles to the seacoast. Well, that wasn't the way back then. The seacoast was right there at Ephesus. Uh, uh, Due to the land coming down from the slopes, the land has moved out and pushed the sea out. It's a weird uh, occurrence in history, but it's happened. But Paul gets this beachhead and he says, no, I won't come. So why is it that Paul would not stay? Doesn't that beg that question? Well, notice when we first read chapter 18, there was something Paul said he was going to do. He had a vow to fulfill. And it said he cut his hair. Now that reference of cutting hair leads us to believe that it was a Nazaritic vow. It was a vow that a Nazarite would make, that he would cut his hair, and during the time that his hair grew, when he came back to Jerusalem, he would recut his hair, and that would be part of the offering to God, to say that I have abstained uh, from wine, that I have given this time over to God to honor him. And Paul had committed a vow to God. Now, uh, this is something I think we should uh, look at, because I think it teaches some great lessons to us, the church, First of all, notice that even though Paul um, decided to leave, he had a plan. Who did he leave there? He left that dynamic couple, that wonderful lay couple of Priscilla and Aquila. He wasn't going to leave the church unattended. He made sure that there were some people who understood Jesus that could instruct them. And so he committed them uh, to stay in Ephesus. But he also did something else. He entrusted that, uh, that church to the providence of God. Did you catch that? He entrusted that church to the providence of God. He knew as much as his heart cared for those people, God's heart for those people was much larger. And the same is true for you all, dear folks of Desert Springs. I know this has been a season, a year, over a year that you've been without a pastor. And... During that time, there's been challenges. Some of your own number have left and went to different congregations. But that does not mean God's love for you uh, has left the building. It is quite here, and it is quite true to, to you and to myself. And notice what happens. I didn't read this, but if you read between verse 20 of chapter 18 and the beginning of 19, somebody named Apollos shows up. Apollos was a man well gifted in the knowledge of the Old Testament, an eloquent speaker, a man who could uh, announce 
God's kingdom. But there is one problem with him. He was deficient in his knowledge of Jesus. And so what does the great keeper of mankind do? When he pulls one pastor out, he pulls another one in. And it was just the man who needed to be there because he needed to be around Priscilla and Aquila. Do you see God's providential hand there? His great care of not only the big picture of his church, but also the minute care of his people, of each individual. He brought Apollos. Brothers and sisters, God knows what his church needs. And if a husband sees the need of his wife and understands and knows what she needs, how much more does the perfect husband, our Lord Jesus Christ, know what his bride, his church, needs? He knows what you need, and he will accomplish those needs. In fact, his ways are higher than our ways. I think a second thing we see from Paul's example here is that we should honor our vows to God. How easily would it have been for Paul to say, I didn't know this was going to happen before I made this vow. I made a boo-boo. Oops. Oh, well, I'll go to Jerusalem here some other later time. I need to stay here. But notice what Paul does. He trusts in God's sovereignty. I mean, I think this was a hard decision for Paul. I mean, he finally gets a captive audience of Jewish people, his own blood. And they say, we want to hear from you. And because he makes this vow, right before he gets there, he trusts God's providence and he leaves this people. Dear friends, Jesus has said to us, let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. When we commit stuff to God, uh, we need to follow through. And that's often hard. My wife and I just went through something like this not too long ago. We made a nice little commitment on about eating desserts. That was not easy. And honestly, we failed a couple of times, more than a couple. But I would encourage you, uh, what you commit to God, commit to Him. Because each time when we screwed up and when we gave in to our own little taste buds, of course, none of you all would ever do that, uh, God convicted us and reminded us, what you have pledged to me, you need to honor. That is the call of God. So after visiting Jerusalem, he reports back into his church in Caesarea, and Paul makes it his primary goal to get back to Ephesus. And the reason why I said earlier is Ephesus was the key in reaching the province of Asia. If you didn't know what the province of Asia is, that's modern-day Turkey. That's all of Turkey. And that's where Paul wanted to go. And so when he gets there, he has a season of extraordinary ministry. And I'll just highlight these things rather quickly. First, there's teachable disciples. Here's God's providence. Of all the people he could run into, who does he run into first? Disciples of John. And these men are teachable. Teachable people are great people to do ministry with. And they say... Show us the way. And Paul realizes they're deficient in the knowledge of the triune God. And very quickly, he leads them to Christ. And they come, and, and quickly, the gifts of the Spirit are, are prevalent in their lives. They prophesy, and they speak in tongues. And when I think when they mean prophecy here, it's the idea of giving glory to God because He saved them. And also the speaking in tongues, I believe, is more uh, a sense of proclaiming God's glory in different languages than it is... Uh, uh, some of our modern-day interpretations. 
But as quick as these things started to happen, opposition began to mount. Notice that in chapter 19, the Jews become obstinate. Luke tells us they refuse to believe. And they push Paul out of the synagogue. And notice again, God's providence. God says, if you don't have a house at my synagogue, I'll provide a house for you. And He provides this lecture hall. That lecture hall of Tyrannus. And it's through this building. Did you catch that? Notice what happens. All of the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to sit in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and hear Paul speak. And not only hear him speak, but also watch God move and show signs to show that the validity of his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. As people heard this, they couldn't help but stay si- or, but to proclaim God's news. They couldn't keep silent. And next after that, notice what happens. God starts using Paul to heal people from sickness and evil spirits. And as this happens, as many good people do, if you see a good thing, you try to copy it, and you try to make a little money off of it. Evidently, I think this is what the seven sons of Sceva saw, what was going on. They were the son of the high priest. And they see what Paul's doing, but they're yet not ready to believe in this Christ. And notice what they say when they come to these people possessed by demonic spirits. They rebuke them in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Did you catch that? They grabbed what Paul was doing and tried to use it. But something happens. You see, they didn't believe in the name of Jesus. They didn't believe that He was the Son of God. Finally, one of the demons saw what was going on. And he recognized that the sons of Sceva did not believe in Jesus. They were only using Jesus' name and Paul's representative voice as their authority. But they did not have any real power. And thus the demon says, I know who Jesus is, and I recognize Paul, but you, who are you? Who are you? And that should teach us something very quickly of where the power over the demonic lies. It is not in any person or sorcerer or son of a high priest. It is in the power of Jesus' name. And Jesus' name... Jesus has conquered the demons. And notice what happens. Again, we see God's sovereignty. Here we see the works of the devil being very uh, violently proclaimed. He beats these seven boys, sort of disciplines them for their arrogance uh, to dare call this demon out of this man's body. But notice what happened. God allows this to happen. And what happens? The people begin to fear God as a result they start to fear Jesus' name. In other words, where they thought fear was supposed to be in these demonic hordes, these people being possessed by demons, instead they start to fear the one true God. And as Solomon said, where the, fear, where the true fear of God happens, true knowledge begins. And as a result, these people begin to see, I have a problem. I have a problem of evil in my soul. I have a problem that I need to get taken care of. I need God. I need Christ. And all of a sudden, revival begins. 
people started confessing their evil deeds. In fact, it was so great that even the elite, those who had great wealth, burned all their books of sorcery to keep up with works of repentance. The Bible tells us that they burned 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a silver corn that was worth about a day's wages. If we compared that to $100, many of us, if we estimated, make per day, that would be $5 million worth in scrolls that they burned up. You see, when, when, <clears throat> when God's Spirit comes into a person's life, and perhaps you remember early on when God came into your life, there is great conviction. I remember when, when Christ came in my life in college, I had my share of certain musical songs that were less than appropriate in God's eyes. And God was cleaning me out. Perhaps He cleaned you out. Now, is it ultimately evil to listen to songs? Well, that's between you and God. But for me at that time, there was great conviction on my soul. I had to get rid of those. I knew this was poisoning me. And I needed to hear from the Lord. That's what was happening to the people in Ephesus. God was changing them. Well, Paul, like any church planner, does one other thing, and I want to note before, as we're wrapping up here, he decides to move on. He wants to get on to Rome. But like so often happens in church plants, God wasn't quite through of him there in Ephesus. A riot happens. A mob gets so incited by this guy, um, Demetrius, who was losing money because Paul was, was, was proclaiming the gospel. And he got mad and he said, I'm going to do something about it. And he had everything he wanted, didn't he? He had a mob bringing people out, dragging them out in the streets, ready to come get somebody. And for two hours, can you imagine what that was like? Two hours, they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I wonder what we would feel like uh, as Christians if we saw a mob gather down there in the uh, Colosseum or uh, the stadium where U of A plays and said those things. And they knew they were out, or we knew they were out to get us. That was some of the things the early church was experiencing. But by God's grace, the mob was turned away. All these things were happening in Ephesus. Great demonic activity, great works of God, great teaching, miracles happening, and threats on one's life. Even when Paul comes back, and you can read this on your own in Acts chapter 20, he stops in to see the elders in Ephesus. And he tells the elders that wolves will come from among your midst, savage wolves which will lead the people astray in the church of Ephesus. Why do I share these things with you? Well, this was all going on in God's church. And it helps us to understand why Paul said the things he said in the book of Ephesians. When we get into the book of Ephesians, we're going to see right from the beginning of our security in Christ through the Trinity. Why might that be important? Well, if you had a part of a city where a mob was about ready to throw you into the pit, you might deal with a little insecurity. You might deal with a little questioning, is God powerful enough to take care of us? 
And those are all great themes in the book of Ephesians. We also see great emphasis on correct doctrine. Paul talks extensively about that in the book of Ephesians, explaining the mystery of the Jews and the Gentiles. What is the purpose of the church? Why does it exist? And what role do church officers play? Notice, too, he talks about marriages. And if you knew anything about the worshiping of Artemis of Ephesians, you knew of the great fornication and the adulteries that were happening. Can you imagine the marriages that were destroyed by the worship of Artemis? And then lastly, doing battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. If you know the book of Ephesians, the last chapter, chapter 6, deals extensively with battling the spiritual forces of evil. Ephesus was a stronghold of demonic activity. It is by knowing that context, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to the book of Ephesians, we understand better uh, what God calls us to do and what, what, and what God's plan is for us. And then there's one last thing, and I'll close in that. Paul teaches the church how to pray. And that is what we are to do, to pray. To pray for God's kingdom, to advance, and for His glories to be made known. So as you uh, conclude, I have a homework assignment for you. Please forgive me. But this week, I'd like you to reread the book of Acts. Search over the scriptures yourself and see um, what the church of Ephesus was facing. I only highlighted some of the big points, but there's other things in there. And then I'd like to challenge you to read the book of Ephesus twice through, preferably in one sitting. Because usually if you read something in one sitting, you capture the whole big sweep. You capture the big picture. What is Paul trying to communicate? And hopefully by doing that, when I preach on the book of Ephesus or book of Ephesians, things will come to you quicker. And you'll start to see God's plan not only for the church, but also for your own soul and your family. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for Paul's ministry and the lives of the church of Ephesus. Lord, thank you how it continues to bear fruit in our life. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, do that in our souls. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.